reading is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nana. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We would be lost without it, without you. And we thank you that you are speaking to us even today by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we need you. We need your presence. We need your wisdom. We need your truth. We need your grace. And so come and Speak loud and clear to our souls. Help us to see Jesus in all his fullness. And uh, pierce us where we are hardened. Um, soften us where we are resistant. Um, encourage us where we feel weak. Um, Jesus, uh, feed us where we are hungry. So come and glorify yourself in this time. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Last week, as you know, we witnessed the devastations of Hurricane Ian in southwest Florida. And you might have seen, as I did, the sad and, and scary videos of floodwaters uh, rushing in to these communities of trees unrooted and, and toppled over by 100 mile per hour plus winds, and of homes that were, were flattened and, and just crushed, almost like a scene from The Three Little Pigs. I saw one video of an entire home floating through a neighborhood in Naples, Florida, almost like a raft, a whole home almost like a barge just floating down a river. Of course, no one's faulting anyone for the fallen trees. No one's faulting anyone for the dislodged homes. That's just how powerful this storm was. 
But it did serve as a reminder, as storms often do, of the importance of roots for trees and of strong structures for our buildings. Roots and structures. That's actually the pair of word pictures, of images, metaphors that we find in today's passage from Paul's letter to the Colossian church. The apostle uses this vivid imagery to teach the Colossians and to teach us that there are basically two ways of living. Two ways of living. A rooted life and an unrooted life. He draws our attention to this idea of a rooted life. We hear it in verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Earlier, the Colossian Christians had been converted. They had turned their lives into vessels of the love of Jesus. They had received Christ Jesus as Lord, which means they came to see him as their sovereign ruler, not only of their personal lives, but over the entirety of the cosmos. Christ is king. And as king, he was the ultimate giver of life and of salvation. In other words, they began to see Jesus as their everything. That's what it means to know him, to receive him, to be converted by him. And Paul now urges the young Colossian Christians to continue to live their lives in this way. Rooted, he says, in Jesus. Just like a plant or a tree is rooted in the soil. Im impossible to dislodge from Christ and his love. Rooted in Jesus like a plant draws the essentials of life from the ground. Drinking in water and nutrients. You too drinking daily, moment by moment, from the life that's given to you in Christ. And built up in Jesus. Like a building depends on its foundation for stability and security. Finding all of our security in Christ alone in a world that always shakes and quakes. Rooted in him. Over six times in this passage we're told that followers of Christ are in Christ. That's a really important phrase that you find all throughout the New Testament. In Christ. And it points to our profound spiritual connectedness to Jesus. It points to what theologians call our union with Christ. Which is to say that by faith, and by the Holy Spirit, all those who follow Jesus 
are not just following him as a religious endeavor, not just intellectualizing him, not even simply following his moral commands, but rather those who follow him are mystically, intimately, eternally, unbreakably one with Christ. Christ in us, as we heard last week, and us in him. In other words, we're connected to Jesus, bonded with him, infused by him, conjoined with him, with a mysterious union and such a mysterious solidarity that one of the favorite ways that the New Testament authors like to describe this union, this spiritual connectedness with Jesus is with the metaphor of plants. And so Jesus himself said, I am the vine, thinking of a grapevine. You are the branches. Remain in me. We're connected, just like vine and branch and leaf and fruit are all intertwined with juices flowing in and out. How is a branch connected to a vine? I don't really know. It's a picture that's meant to help convey this mysterious reality of our union and our spiritual dependence upon Jesus. And so Paul the Apostle continues to pick up on this biblical picture, and he starts talking again about plants. Guess what? Roots. Rooted in Jesus, connected to him vitally, mystically, spiritually. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. And so Paul says, You already are united, rooted in him. So continue to be rooted in him. Depend upon him. Live in light of him. Let your thoughts and your mind and even your body be saturated by his love, by his presence, by his glory. Make everything about you sort of just spill over with more of Jesus. Take him in like your life depends upon it because you know after all, it really does. And watch him work in your life as he changes you into his image more and more, and more. There's two ways of living. The apostle says the first way is a rooted life, rooted in Jesus. And if the first way of living is the well-rooted life, the second is what you might call an unrooted life. Unrooted, just sort of blowing around, unanchored, disconnected from Christ. We see this idea in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See, the unrooted life is one that seeks to plug into or sink its roots into sources of salvation or spirituality, or security other than Christ. Specifically, the apostle warns about certain philosophies. Now that refers not just to formal schools of thought, the, the sort of isms of our day, 
but it also refers to ideas or just patterns of thinking about life that had begun to yank on the, the Colossians' rootedness in Christ. These philosophies, these ideas, these patterns, well, notice how they're described in this passage. They're deceptive, they're hollow, and they take you captive. These ideas and philosophies are deceptive. They're not what they actually appear to be. You might be familiar with the Netflix game show called Is It Cake? Sort of a fun, silly show where you have these incredible bakers that are really good at making these baked good items look like real objects, like purses and bags and athletic shoes and all kinds of things. How they do it, I don't know, but in the grand moment of revelation in the show, they take a knife and they start cutting through the items and you're waiting to see, will the cake show its form or will you find yourself cutting into a purse or a shoe, right? And the whole thing about the show is, are you deceived, gleefully deceived by these gifted bakers? Well, not all deception is gleeful, of course. And not all things are what they appear to be. The apostle points to ideas and patterns that are deceptive. See, they're deceptive because they actually do speak to a real need or longing. A longing of the heart, a human need that we might have. They're deceptive because they're based on partial truth. So they're not all wrong, just partly wrong, fatally wrong. And they appear to work or they appear to satisfy our hearts, but in the end, they don't. Which is why the apostle calls these philosophies not just deceptive, but also hollow. They, they can't deliver on their promise they're empty. They have, ultimately, they don't work. They can't save or satisfy. And they take you captive. Uh, they're, they're entrancing. They, they kind of lure you in, and, and, and you start to become a follower of sorts about these things. But eventually, before you know it, they're enslaving you. They're holding you in bondage. You find yourself stuck right? Actually rooted in them, not easily detached. And it's not only because they're just sucking your mind or your heart, perhaps, but there might even be spiritual forces behind these things. The apostle points to these possible elemental spiritual forces behind these philosophies. Uh, scholars debate the meaning of this phrase, but it, it could even be pointing to demonic and dark spiritual realities. In other words, that there's a real spiritual bondage that can form in this unrooted life, following after these different patterns of thought and behavior. Even when you want to get out, you can't get out. And someone says, well, that, that, that sounds a little dramatic. Uh, can you give some examples in our modern day? Of course, we, we could point to certain isms. It certainly doesn't exclude that as possible examples. The rising tide of Christian nationalism, for example. Or, on the other hand, radical gender progressivism, for example. 
things that we could talk about further, but I want to bring it down a little bit closer to home for us, ways in which we see these partial truths, this tapping into longings that we all have, and the ways in which we can be captivated and even captive by things that we start to pursue. And so, for example, maybe it is that you find this longing in your heart because you just feel empty. You just feel empty, nothing on the inside. And you're desperate for personal fulfillment, which isn't, of course, a bad thing in and of itself. But isn't this why so often we find ourselves rooting ourselves in toxic relationships? Broken forms of relating to other people, trying to satisfy or rather fill that void in our hearts. Isn't it why sometimes so many of us apply ourselves to work in a way where it's properly described as a manifestation of workaholism? A, 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 a bondage of one's heart to needing to feel fulfilled in the workplace. It might even be why we're so bonded to certain types of community. Who says that's wrong? It's a good thing. Again, this can be deceptive, but the ways in which we can relate to communities, needing it to fill a need that God alone can fill. Recently, I read a word by journalist Sophie Gilbert who said this, I think, insightfully. We used to live more communally. We used to see one another at church every Sunday. We used to draw on friends, family, and neighbors for help. But as work has atomized Americans into tiny self-sustaining units, the joy of collective experience has been lost. That's why, she writes, so many people now seek out a distinctly spiritual kind of sucker via candlelit soul cycle revivals or manifestation meetings. The way in which that longing for community can become an inordinate longing or a fulfillment that we're seeking because we feel empty inside. Or maybe it's not emptiness you feel. Maybe it's filthiness. Maybe it's something about your appearance or something about you've, what you've done or some mistake that you've made or something that someone has told you that makes you feel just not right, dirty, discardable, filthy, and you feel stuck and you despair. Or maybe there's a part of you that just feels dead inside. Nobody wants to feel dead. We're not made to feel dead. This is a legitimate longing that we have. And yet we seek to then find this feeling of aliveness in so many different ways. You, you'll do anything to feel alive. And so we pursue forms of, of, of what we think of as freedom, defining freedom as just total liberation from constraints of any kind, which of course is no freedom at all. That itself can become an enslaving pursuit too. And so we find ourselves chasing after sexual exploits as a way of trying to feel alive, trying to kickstart the deadness to make yourself feel human again. Or maybe it's why we pursue so often different ways of, 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 of establishing or achieving wellness. There was a book recently written by Rina Raphael called The Gospel of Wellness. The, the way in which we now so often pursue wellness and self-care as, as a near religion to satisfy something deeper than just our outer being. 
This is what's written about that idea. The more burdens we accumulate, children, aging parents, student loans, mortgages, anxiety disorders, bad backs, extra pounds. I mean, are you getting tired just hearing that list? The more we are urged to be well by way of, but still more effort, throwing out our plastic containers, cutting out lectins, practicing mindfulness, learning about environmental toxins, doing the research, and so on and so forth. The way that even that can be some way in which we're trying to make ourselves feel less dead and more alive. Some of us, it's not that. You're just killed, crushed by guilt within. And you don't know how to atone for it. Something in your past or maybe some habit in the present. And you just don't know where you'll find mercy, where you'll find atonement. Where you'll find like you're doing an okay job, acceptance and welcome. If not before God and other people, at least before yourself. Let's be honest. It's a lot of what drives, so often tragically drives parenting and all that we do. This inner guilt that can often push us along. Doing whatever we can to to make and keep our kids feeling happy because of some inner feeling that we're just not doing enough. It's a guilt that we can barely identify, and it's something that can twist our decisions and our motivations along the way. Or it's the way in which so many people find themselves pursuing racial harmony or these different pursuits of social justice, right? Feeling this guilt within, maybe something that my family or or my ancestors had done or maybe that I myself did in a previous chapter of my life but now feeling like I need to atone for those things driven primarily then by guilt rather than love for my sister or for my neighbor. Or maybe you're living feeling defeated, just wiped out and defeated. Feeling like you're just losing on life and you're like, can I just spend one day winning? Just want to Can we just win once? Find some little, little peak of of triumph in my life. It's why I think some of us try to find literal peaks to ascend. Uh, Traveling, taking trips and adventure to feel like, well, I might be losing in the rest of my life, but I just conquered this thing, and I can feel like I am, in fact, a conqueror. I think it's what pushes so many people into the realm of, of politics which of course so often becomes a crass game of winning and losing, but hey, if I'm on the right team, at least I'll be triumphant. At least we can win. It's what propels people to grab a hold of politics and partisan affiliation with such rigor and even religiosity because there's that nagging inside part of you that's just tired of being defeated. It's time to win. What is it? that lurks in your heart and that then makes all these ideas, patterns of living and other things attractive. Seeking to be atoned for, seeking to be forgiven, seeking to be made whole, seeking to be fulfilled, seeking to be free, seeking to be alive. You know what you're longing for? A well-rooted life. You know what you're longing for? Jesus. What does that look like, though? So we said there's two lives, two ways of living that the apostle puts before us, a well-rooted life and an unrooted life. Oh, but beloved, what does the well-rooted life actually look like? 
five promises. We're going to run through this quickly and then we're done. Five promises of the well-rooted life that the apostle unpacks for us. And remember, all of this is yours when you are rooted in Christ. Five promises. Number one, to those who feel empty, you are fully filled in Christ. Verses 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So you can follow Paul's logic here. He says, look, what do you have in Jesus? Just a man? Just a teacher? Just a good ancient rabbi that taught a few good things that you might read about? No, no, no. He said, what do you have in Jesus? In him... You have one in whom the fullness of God, the God of the universe, is present and invested. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And so that means then, here's the logic. If you are in Christ, spiritually, intimately united to him, then guess what? A to B, B to C, you have all of God. All of him without reservation. You are full, beloved. Everything you need, you have in him. So you don't need to go elsewhere to find God. Or to go elsewhere to meet God or to need God. There's not a piece of God that's missing. There's nothing that you need to add if you are in Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone, God has fully given himself to us. You feel empty? Guess what? You are not empty. You are fulfilled in Christ. Hallelujah. Promise number two, to those who feel filthy, you are clean in Christ. Verses 11 and 12, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so here Paul's reasoning rests on this ancient ritual that continues to this day but had an ancient meaning that is often lost in this day. And that is this, that in the rite of circumcision, the removal of the foreskin from young males, that there was this understanding that there was something impure about that foreskin that was being removed. This was a ritual that represented symbolically purification, a cleansing of a person. This is not actually a biological or medical claim that's being made. This is simply culturally what was believed at that time. And this is how the meaning of this ritual was received and practiced. And that is why there's this analogy and relationship being placed before us between circumcision and baptism. You see the same symbolism, the same idea more clearly represented in baptism. It's washing. 
It's cleansing of our spiritual filthiness that is happening in our baptism through Christ. And Paul puts those two things together. Just as with circumcision, so also in the waters of baptism, the point is Jesus makes you clean. In Christ, you have been cleansed, spiritually circumcised. And your flesh was put off, put to death, cut off. In other words, that part of you, that old pattern of, of sinfulness, Jesus makes you cleansed and new. So you are clean, but now you can also live clean because he's put off that sin and given you the power to live a new, clean life. Some of you today have a nagging conscience that's uneasy, that maybe is exactly why you stand off from people. You're afraid of, of, of being found out. Or, or you feel like you need to keep a distance because you're not sure what people might see and judge about you. And maybe that's exactly why you've been keeping a distance from God, because you're afraid he might see exactly what you know and are working so hard not to see about yourself, your flaws and your mistakes and your filth. But guess what, beloved? He sees it all. And if you'll just come to him, he'll forgive it all. Because if you are in Christ, you are not filthy, but clean in him. Promise number two. Promise number three, to those who feel dead, you are alive with Christ. You're alive with Christ. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And remember, the whole principle in Paul's logic here is this union with Christ. We are connected to Jesus, him and us and us and him. And what that means is everything that is true of Jesus is true of us. If by faith and by the Holy Spirit we are united to him. Everything that happened to Jesus happens spiritually to us. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died not for his sins but for ours. If you're united with him, then all your sins have been paid for under the justice of God. You're free of the penalty of sin. But it also means when Jesus rose from death to life, if you're united to him, that you who were dead in your sins now also are raised alive with him. You came to life. You're made spiritually alive, spiritually responsive to the beauty of God's love. Spiritually responsive to the wonder of his forgiveness. Spiritually responsive and alive to the beauty and the glory and the truth of God in Christ. Christ died, we died. Christ rose, we rise. What that means is you are not dead. You are alive. The fourth promise for those who feel guilty, you are forgiven in Christ. Second half of verse 13. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge 
of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. There's been a lot of public conversation around the topic of student loan debt forgiveness. And of course, I remember ourselves when Paula and I would get that monthly invoice and be reminded again that there's more to be paid. And you get that invoice again, that notice, there's more to be paid. Your debt is still outstanding. There's more to be paid. How much more so do we quake or tremble when we get these notices in our consciences in regards to our sins? There's more to be paid. Debts for our sin that have not yet been canceled. The apostle here is using this language, uh, this image of, of a promissory note or, or a written invoice. If you could just imagine a list of, of all your sins, this list, this report that stands against us and condemns us. And we know, as God has told us, we cannot pay it off. It's a debt that we Oh, we, 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 it's insurmountable. It can't just be canceled by force of will. And here's Jesus hanging on the cross for those very sins. And beloved, the apostle tells us that he took for every single one of us that long list, that record of wrongs, that debt invoice, that promissory note, he took that list and he nailed it to the cross. He paid the debt that you owed. He died the death that you and I should have died. And in doing so, he erased the record. He deleted, he wiped it away forever. The other day I was flipping through my phone and I tried to delete some pictures that I no longer needed. And as I was flipping through that photos app that I have on my phone, I noticed in the corner this little link that says deleted photos folder or something to that effect. And I was horrified to think there's, there, there's a deleting and then there's a saving of the stuff that you just deleted apparently. And some of us live believing that God told you that he deleted your sins, but he still has that folder over here in the corner where he can kind of reopen it up and be like, yeah, I, I forgave those, I deleted those things, but let, let, let's, let's come back to them again. Deleted, but not yet deleted. Beloved, when Christ died for you on the cross, he double deleted all of your sins. He said they're gone and they are gone. They're finished from his sight. They've been paid for and they are no more. There's no more retrieving the record of those wrongs. You were guilty. In fact, you and I were guilty. But if you are in Christ and you can be found in him today by putting your trust in him today, you will be forgiven. You are forgiven in Christ. All our sins, no sin is too great, no sin too dark, no sin too repeated to be forgiven, double deleted in Christ for all eternity.
Jesus had a placard nailed above his head on the cross. That was the charge sheet, all the crimes for which he died. In fact, in the court of heaven, the placard above our Savior's head had your name on it and mine. Jesus died for all of our sins. He was fully innocent but was treated as guilty so that those of us who were guilty might be made innocent, forgiven in him. You, beloved, are forgiven in Christ. And lastly, fifthly, here's the final promise to those who feel defeated. You are triumphant in Christ. Verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We're told that, that Paul is conceiving of, of the evil powers and authorities, perhaps that we can't see. These spiritual forces of darkness have authority and power over us in the ways in which we are tempted, in the ways in which darkness and despair can loom over our lives. And yet Paul says, Christ, when he died, did not merely forgive our sins. He actually defeated the spiritual powers and authorities that were terrorists in this world and continue to be, in fact. He disarmed the powers and the authorities. What one commentator called terrorists from hell who were stripped of their weapons, disarmed when Christ was nailed to the cross. Paul, of course, is recalling the Roman practice of a, of a military triumph, a victory parade, where the conquering king or his generals are parading through the city, presenting for all the citizens of the kingdom, the, the spoils of their victory and lagging behind them the, the prisoners of war. And here the apostle says, those prisoners of war, the, the ones that have been disarmed, the ones that are now being put on display, they, they are the spiritual forces of, of evil who, who still will fight against us and terrorize our world, but they have no authority over you. They have no authority over you. And though we yield to them, Far too often, we in fact are triumphant in Christ over them. Christ who triumphed over them by the cross. We feel defeated so often, don't we? Defeated in the face of grave and great evils. Defeated over, defeated by the, the principle of sin that remains in our heart. Jesus tells us that we are in fact victorious over these things in Christ. 
As commentator Mark Maynell has written, nothing can possibly defeat Jesus now. He endured the worst the world could throw at him and still won. And I'd add, and because we are united to this victorious Christ, the same is true of us. Nothing can possibly defeat you now either. Hallelujah. You are not defeated by sin or Satan, you are triumphant in Christ. And so here's the invitation that we might all, by faith and with joy, claim these promises. These promises that come by being united to Christ as people rooted in him. So that you might know that if you feel empty, that you are fully fulfilled in Christ. If you feel filthy, you are cleansed in Christ. If you feel dead, you got to know you are alive with Christ. If you feel guilty, you are in fact you are in fact forgiven in Christ. If you feel defeated, you are, beloved, triumphant in Christ. Believe all this. Believe all this and more. To believe that this is true of you if you are in Jesus. This is what it means to be rooted in him and to remain in him. Beloved, this is what is offered to you. For some of you, perhaps, for the first time, will you put your trust in Jesus today? Sink your roots of life deep into him that you would draw from the life, the true life that he offers to you. Life and forgiveness and resurrection and cleansing and fullness for all eternity all for you and if you are in Christ that you would persevere in joy and in growth and in livelihood with him oh beloved take a hold of this Christ as he has taken hold of you be rooted in him claim his promises for yourself and give him the glory let's pray and so Jesus we look to you to do this for us, to, to give us the ability to, to know that we are rooted in you and then to once again sink our roots in, in you. You who have united us to yourself by faith, by the Holy Spirit, and help us to believe that these things are true and change our lives. Oh, Lord, change our lives for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. In Christ's name, amen.